It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of the Guy Benson Show. We are happy on the radio to welcome back Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, host of Fox Nation Outdoors on Fox Nation, and also the podcast, Proud American. Joey, welcome back. Merry Christmas to you. Hey, brother. How's it going? Thanks for having me on today. Merry it's Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's great to have you back. We're doing well. I wanted to ask you a few different things, and your invite to come on the show was really sparked and inspired by a tweet that you posted last evening on your feed. And it's two photographs. One is of you in a hospital bed looking very banged up after the attack that you suffered while serving abroad. And then the next one is of you in your holiday finest. You're wearing a tux. You've got the bow tie on, big smile. And that's, of course, much more recent. And here's what you said, your caption for these two photos. I wake up every day and wrestle anger, resentment, and sadness. Thankfully, I have joy, hope, and love in my corner. Feed the good wolf. You don't need to find hope. You merely need to choose. Two pictures, same circumstance, same man. Fate is a choice. And I thought that was a really powerful and moving tweet. And it's also a reminder that even though it's this wonderful time of year, as the song goes, the most wonderful, in fact, and people have warm and fuzzies and family and gifts and all of that, for many people, it's been a tough year overall, and the holidays can actually be harder if they are missing someone in their life, if they've had a difficult time for some reason, seeing everyone else carrying on and feeling the spirit with a smile on their face and getting excited for Christmas or New Year's and and you don't have that in your life, that's actually can be really hard on people and really tax their mental health. And it seems like you wanted to maybe send a message to some of those people. What caused you to send this tweet and what were you trying to convey beyond just the words that you wrote? Yeah, man, I I appreciate you bringing it up and asking the question that way. And I think uh, the best analogy I can give is, you know, we watch movies and a lot of times we see... um, you know, military leaders and inspiring people on a horse on a hill watching the troops down below fight. They've got their hand in the air yelling commands. And the truth is the inspirational leaders are the ones down there with with their elbows up in the middle of the fight. And so if I post something on Twitter or Instagram in, in that vein, it's because I'm struggling that day and I had to tell myself that and think, you know, if I can figure this out, maybe I can help somebody else figure it out too. And uh, and so for me, it's it's real simple. 
I'm sitting here. I'm looking at a, a lot of work I want to do with the few weeks I have at home because you know how the travel schedule can be when you work in, in the world we work in. Yep. And I had a really busy November and December. And uh, because of a few reasons, I ended up with an extra week at home. And I'm sitting here looking at this list of things I want to do. And then I realized, you know what, I can get to like maybe half of this because I do things much slower. I have to wait till somebody can help me out. I have this reason. I have that reason. These things that just kind of are, aren't, they're not prohibitive. I wouldn't call them restrictive, but they definitely slow me down and cause me to need help. And then I just took that moment to say, you know what, like, what kind of a blessing is it that want to have people that will come help me out? I, I have, you know, means to go buy that tool I need to do it that, that helps me get it done. Because I'm a, I'm a home improvement, make things with my hands kind of guy. And really that's kind of where my mom was at. It, it was one of those things where it's like everything else in life is the exact same way. You, you have something in front of you, and it can be a burden or a blessing, and it's really just up to your perspective. You're sitting in traffic. You're late for somewhere. You can be upset that you're going to be late, or you can tune the radio to your favorite song, the temperature to your favorite comfort, and realize the worst thing about your day is you're going to be comfortable and entertained longer than you wanted to be. And, and that's the power perspective. And, you know, I, I get an opportunity to speak about this a lot, but when I have an opportunity that it, it happens to me and I have to make that choice that I preach about, then I want to brag on that, too, because it means it works. And if it works for me, I'm sure it works for other people, too. I would simply say that if you're stuck in traffic and you're running late, we would recommend tuning the radio to The Guy Benson Show. That's the one tweak that I would offer to, to the scenario that you just like painted. <laughs> and I want to just quickly digress before we come back to the serious stuff. You said you're sort of a do-it-yourself kind of guy, home improvement. Do you have, because folks who are oriented that way, always have a project, either in mind or underway. Do you have a current DIY project that you're doing? Yeah, I have a, I have a woodworking room. So my dad built the house I lived in. He built my grandparents' house by hand. He was a brick and block mason by trade, but if you know anything about that work, you can't do it when the, when the weather got too low freezing, so you have to have other skills. And so my dad was more of a, of a framing kind of guy, frame a house up, and I've learned how to do the finished stuff. So I'm about to put two, uh, I guess we call them built-in gun cabinets when you walk into my house. So one side will be rifles, the other side will be shotguns. And I'm the kind of guy that I think about it and plan it out for several weeks. That way I can get it done when I decide to do it. And so I've got this little wood shop in my basement. I've been actually building tools to use to build with. And, uh, and after Christmas, once the decorations come down, I get permission. I'm going to be knocking holes in the wall and putting gun cabinets in the wall. So I'm excited about that. That is so completely opposite my personal experience in every conceivable way, but it's very on brand for you, and the lack of that is very on brand for me, I would say, Joey. So, come, yes, sir. Coming back to your tweet and the message behind it, because you give these speeches, because you go around talking to people about overcoming adversity, you lost your legs in war, you're very you know, public and open about that, and you say sometimes things take you a little bit longer, take a little bit slower... And you're often that source of hope and that ray of sunshine and light for people, which is great. But as you just noted, sometimes it's you. You're the one who needs the help. You're the one that needs to be lifted up. And coming back to your own principles and your own mantras, that, of course, has to be valuable. But are there people that you rely on? Are there folks that you'll text or call or talk to when you're having a difficult time and not being afraid to sort of reach out and be a little bit vulnerable. No, absolutely. And, and I really appreciate you pointing to that. The truth is it, it becomes a really heavy responsibility when people look at you 
for a source of inspiration. Now, that's not to say that I take it for granted, but, you know, you, you don't get to have a bad day if everybody's looking at you for their good day. It's mm-hmm. kind of how it feels sometimes. But w- one of the magic things about it was I realized having a bad day is not only okay for them, but it's okay for me. And sometimes people connect with me better when they know that I feel the same things they feel and experience the same things they do. So usually it's those same people that you might say I inspire that inspire me back. Because I guarantee you, I've read almost every comment on that post you were just talking about. And the things people say really help me a lot. I mean, it's a little, the best way I connected to people is that I might stand in front of an audience of, a hundred to ten thousand, and uh, you know, not ten thousand lately, but at one point in my life before COVID, and uh, and I might say something like, you know, you have all this reverence for me because I lost my legs in war, but I've gone on to to have a fulfilled life and what some people might say an, an exceptionally successful life. But the point there is, in that audience, in that moment, I don't care if it's a hundred people or ten thousand. I really don't. There are people that lost their parents way too early, people that filed for divorce when they didn't think they were going to go down that road, people that had filed for bankruptcy, people that lost a child, people that have cancer. And the truth is they're all in that room, and whatever we're celebrating that night, they're celebrating it too. And so if you need to find adversity, if you need to find inspiration to get through adversity or people that have figured it out, Look no further than the people around you because all those things are represented in your life every single day. And every group of people you walk into, even if it's the ones you don't like sometimes, they've been through it. That's the human experience. That That is so consistent in our lives that it's really the, the exception is the moments where we find someone who hasn't been through something like that. And then we start to worry, like, well, you know, are you for real? <laughs> so the truth is we've all been through it. We've all been through the ringer. That's a part of it, of existence on this life. We're the only animal that's adapted our entire environment to suit us rather than adapt ourselves to suit the environment we're in. And through that comes a lot of adversity and, uh, and we in our probably most ingenious adaptation is our emotional intelligence and our ability to lean towards each other to get through things. And, um, and that's something we all have. I, I just happen to be public about mine. I just happen to have a platform for mine, but don't think for a minute, I don't gain inspiration from the people walking around me and, and that's who everyone should look to. Joey, I want to ask you this because we were talking on yesterday's show quite a lot about Christmas plans and some of the upheaval and uncertainty surrounding Omicron and what if people test positive and are certain things getting shut down and are people having their Christmas plans sort of yanked from underneath them again. It stirred a thought in my mind about the many people, men and women serving this country who know for a fact they will not be home for Christmas. They will not see their loved ones this week for Christmas because they are deployed. How many Christmases were you deployed for? And what is that like to be abroad so far away from your family and friends on a holiday that in so many ways is about family and friends in addition to, of course, the huge religious connotations? You know, I had the fortune and misfortune of deploying mostly during the summer, which the fortune there is I got to spend the, the big holidays at home and the misfortune is that's when all the fighting happens. So I don't know if anybody <laughs> planned that out on purpose for me or what, but I only spent one Christmas deployed and then one Christmas in the hospital um, out of eight years in the Marine Corps. So I, I lucked out on that respect. But I can tell you, for those that are, that are deployed, I think that what's great about it is, yes, you do long to be home, but you also get reminded of what this is about. And you realize how 
say, you know what, I'm pretty lucky. I'm sitting here among people that literally die for me. I'm sitting here among people who are going through what I'm going through, um, and not just because this is a holiday, but because we're at war or we're forward deployed or we're somewhere way away from home right now, even if we're not in immediate danger. It's not a lot of fun. I mean, you can go do a training exercise on the island of Kona in Hawaii, the big island, and it's not very fun. You're sitting on lava rocks living in a tent. You're in Hawaii, but you don't know it. And so there's a lot of experiences that, that on their face aren't pleasant that our military goes through every year and every day in some places. But there's something simple and amazing about it. When you're sitting around a card table playing something like spades, with a bunch of people, with three other guys or gals or guys and gals, that outside of that environment you'd have nothing else in common. But right there you are on a holiday that maybe not even all of you celebrate, and there's a feeling of family and appreciation that you have these people in your life. And i tell you what, if you don't learn something from that and bring it back with you, that's the big failure. You know, we always have a responsibility, those of us that serve. Yes, we sacrifice, but we also sign up to have this responsibility that never leaves us just because the uniform does. And that responsibility is we got to see behind the curtain. And, and I tweeted an analogy earlier today. You know, if you, if you ever have a chance to peek behind the curtain, take it because you'll find that maybe the world isn't as magical as it was when you had that kind of ambivalence or ignorance or, or bliss of not knowing, but then you also learn the wizard isn't that scary either. Obviously, this is a Wizard of Oz analogy. But the idea of being once you go to combat and you experience how dangerous life can be, when you come home, you're not ever going to forget that. So you're not ever going to be able to just let your guard down and kind of walk through this world with your face buried in your phone or, or without any care in the world. As much as that may seem like a negative, it also allows you to see the world for what it is and appreciate those good moments, those safe moments, the moments that your family are at your house, and nothing's going to hurt anybody in that home. And so everything that's negative can have a positive. That's really the underlying issue there. And the responsibility we have in the military is we had that experience that not all Americans get to have. And our responsibility is to come home and, one, share it with others so they understand the gravity of just living in this world, and, two, appreciate things and try to help others appreciate it in a way that very few can. I can tell you, you know, when it comes to material things, I've amassed things, and it's fun to have them but they could all be gone tomorrow and what's important to me won't change. And what, and what I enjoy the most will still be there. And sometimes you got to go through some stuff to get to that point. And if you can help other people feel that way, man, that's the responsibility that's worth having. Yeah. Well said, Joey Jones, last subject. I hope it's not a sore one. I have to ask you this since we probably won't have you back on the show before the new year, the university of Georgia bulldogs, are they going to beat Michigan? And if so, do they have what it takes to actually win the rematch? Or is it just going to be Bama again? <laughs> do they have what it takes? They absolutely have what it takes. Um, I think uh, with Michigan, it's going to be a fun game because the teams are built very similar. They both want to run the ball first, and they both want to lean into their defense. And Michigan's done a fantastic job of that as of late. And the last time Georgia took the field, they did neither one of those things yeah, very well. Um, you know, you can't look at the 12 games before Alabama and say that Georgia doesn't have what it takes. It just depends on how they get coached. I think I love Coach Kirby Smart and the whole staff. I think Georgia got out coached by the best in the business and the best there's ever been. And I don't think they're going to let that happen twice. So will they beat Michigan? I think they will. Will they beat Alabama in a rematch if it gets there? I think it will be a much different game. I, I don't know if they'll come out on top, but I think, uh, hey, I'm proud of them. They went 12-0. And, uh, and I'm proud of my Bulldogs. I've got my G's flying everywhere. Yeah, I mean, look, they're in the playoff, and anything can happen. And, I mean, Michigan, they are peaking at the right time, you could say. They're very talented. They finally got the monkey off their back with Ohio State. 
Uh, so they'll be fired up to represent the Big Ten Conference. You guys, Georgia, excellent, excellent, excellent football team. I don't think they'll be looking past Michigan, but I think the whole country is wondering, can anyone topple Alabama, including Cincinnati in you know the first game? Uh, in that playoff. We'll be watching very closely. I'm really torn on the Georgia-Michigan game. I'm a Big Ten guy, but some of my best friends are Georgia fans. So we'll see how I'm feeling in the moment, who I'm rooting for. But I know who you will be rooting for, the red and the black. Go dogs all the way, at least down in Georgia. And our listeners listening on 106.3 Extra in Atlanta. Joey, always great to talk to you, sir. Have a very, very Merry Christmas. Absolutely. You guys too. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, and we will be right back. This is the best of the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to the best of the Guy Benson Show. So we did this story last night on Gutfeld, which was a blast, by the way. I had a lot of fun. It was very loose. It went, it just flew by. So thanks to those of you who watched and reached out. Apparently, there's some studies. So who knows how accurate this really is. But studies say that during the pandemic, we collectively as a society, we are cursing more. We are swearing more. And I wonder if that's actually true. So we decided that we would reach out and check in with the member of our team who just swears like a sailor. The mouth on this kid, it's unbelievable. Quiet Wyatt joins us from Washington, D.C. Wyatt, is it true that your already significant cursing problem has only spiraled during COVID? Uh, yes, Guy. I, I have to say I totally agree with the findings in this article. So you're saying that the study, in your view, is not bullshit? That's true. I, I think that everyone, you know, working from home the way we all did, it kind of it blends in with the way you are at home to the way you are at work and your brain gets confused mm -hmm. and sometimes you slip a little. Yep. And I can just say this because Wyatt just the other day when I was back in D.C., Wyatt was over on the other side of the studio and then he came out in the hallway and he stubbed his toe and he looked down and unleashed a tirade, just a torrent of foul language. He said, what the fudge? Darn you to heck. And whatever he tripped over. And I was like, wow, Wyatt, calm down. We have to get some soap, young man. So sounds like he's buying into this. He's just totally off the rails with his language these days. I don't know what happened to Wyatt. He's been hanging around producer Christine too much. No, I'm just kidding. She says the real words. We'll be right back. are tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com. That's the exclusive home for the Patriot Awards tonight. You should watch. And it's exciting. As you might be able to hear in the background, the crowd is in. 
and they are loud. Thousands of them will be in the auditorium to my left here in just a few hours. It's going to be really, really exciting. Our website here at the program, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. And the happy hour is sponsored, as always, by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. It's really good. (laughs) Refreshing. It is delicious. You've got to try it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. Expanding all over the place. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Well, I'm joined now, sitting right next to me, by someone that perhaps you've heard of. If you're a Fox fan, Tucker Carlson is host of Tucker Carlson Tonight, weeknights, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Also, Tucker Carlson Today and Tucker Carlson Originals at Fox Nation. You can find out more at foxnation.com or tuckercarlson.com. You're very busy. They have you doing many things, Tucker. I can't believe I'm on a show sponsored by a Finnish booze company. That is the coolest thing that's oh. ever happened to me. Well, I'm I, glad that we can be a I love it. Finland. I'm actually part Finnish, and the Finns know booze. Like they do. They, <laughs> yeah, they do. And, and this has been the most popular alcoholic beverage there for like 70 years. It's <laughs> like Guinness that. is to Ireland as long drink is to Finland. And they sponsored the show, and it's really good. That it's, is so, it's such a great country. It's a, wonder, it's a wonderful country, I think. I want to start with just some, like, almost shop talk, because whenever I'm out and meeting people and chatting with Fox viewers around the country when I'm traveling, many times people ask about you. Oh, Tucker, what's he like? You know, his show, it's been such a huge success. It got me thinking, because you've been in this business for a while now. You've been at CNN, Crossfire. 26 years. The Bowtie Days and MSNBC, of course, and at Fox. Different roles here at Fox. Yeah, yeah. And now this primetime show that has just been like a rocket ship, this massive success, not taking anything away from your prior successes at other networks and other shows. What is it about this show that you think has catapulted it to the level that it is. What's unique about it? Well, I don't have any sense of, you know, I'm, I'm the least self-aware person in the world by design. I think self-awareness leads to self-obsession, which leads to self-pity, which leads to misery. So I, I really try not to think about myself. Um, but if I'm being completely honest about it, I think it it's pretty simple. Like I've hosted a lot of shows on multiple networks and it really depends on the network. You know, if you're hosting a, a show on a channel that nobody watches, then nobody's watching. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you host a show on Fox right now and speak to relevant issues, you can't but help get a big audience. And that's kind of so I'm not being falsely modest, I'm being sincere because I, I've lived it. I think it really has a lot to do with, you know, the eight PM show on Fox is just an amazing piece of real estate. Um I, I know that personally I'm fifty two, so I've really kind of run out of any interest at all in what liars say. So, for example, 20 years ago, if someone had ever called me a white supremacist, I think I would have been paralyzed with horror because that's an awful thing to call someone. It's an awful thing to be, and I'm, of course, not. But now I real, I've realized, just having grown older, that like the people saying that don't mean it at all. You know, the first time someone called me that, I went on TV and said, no, actually, you know, I'm, I've got really pretty liberal racial views. I think we're all the same. Everyone's created by God. I'm a Christian. I think we have identical value. And I really mean that. And I do think that. And so I hope this clears it up. He's a white supremacist. And that's when I realized they don't care what you say. No, there's no they're, point in clearing There's up. no point, right? So the only reason they're saying that is in order to control you through fear. And I'm just old enough that I'm not at all afraid. I know exactly who I am. I have weaknesses. That's just not one of them. Now, if they call me out of one of my weaknesses... 
If they're like, like wow, what? I don't know. We notice that you gain and lose 50 pounds a year. Like maybe you could get your, you know, snacking under control. That would probably hurt my feelings a little bit because that's totally real. <laughs> what's what's your worst like guilty pleasure? I mean, I, you know, I'll eat anything bad. Um, I think partly it's, well, it's just a lack of self-control or, you know, I write a lot, you know, that's essentially my job is to write. And so I think when, you know, you're totally absorbed in writing something every day, you kind of give yourself permission in a very self-indulgent way to eat crappy food and that's whatever. I mean, it's just, and part of it is just, just laziness, you know, rather than make a meal or go find a meal. You know, if someone were to put a bunch of Fig Newtons in my house, I'd probably eat them. It's like, here they are. Right. So, so, so but that's like an actual fault. Or sometimes I get mad. You know, I have a temper. That's a totally fair criticism, and I take that seriously. But the other criticisms that are not real at all, they're not even close to real, I sincerely don't care. I just don't care. So that's a strength. If you don't care... And you, that means you can't, they don't have a leash on you. Like, they, they're not controlling but you. But they try, of course. And there's this whole almost cottage industry. There's a whole group of people devoted, seemingly, to criticizing you and trying to get you fired and canceled every day. Do you ever think about them when you're planning the program, like, even to give them middle fingers on a nightly basis? No, it's you funny. Not think it's about funny. Them? If you knew how cut off I was by design, I don't think anyone would actually really believe it. But I just, I lead a very different kind of life. You know, I'm not interested in participating in that. I don't like the internet. I think technology is, for the most part, poison. I'm for MRIs, you know, <laughs> okay. I'm for chemotherapy. But in general, technology has not liberated us, it's enslaved us, and it makes people unhappy, and it divides them from each other, and I just don't participate. You know, I don't like the internet at all. And I don't go there, I don't do social media, I hate social media. So how do you build a nightly show? If you're cut off to Through some text extent- text message. Through text messages. With, with your team? No, 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 with hundreds of people. So I get daily texts from probably a couple hundred at least people I know around the country, world really, who I've known for a long time, who've got good judgment, who are in different worlds, living different kinds of lives, who send me stuff. And that's the primary way that I understand the world. And it's almost like having a team of course. I know it sounds very weird, but it's 100%. Ask anybody who works with me, it's true. And, um, and, I, and then in my private life, I really try and read books. I don't, I, I think the internet is so misleading. It gives, the Google gives the illusion of access to knowledge when in fact it's a tightly constrained world, constrained by people with the worst possible motives, you know? So if you want to understand what's happening in the world, read history, and I, I, I do. I mean, I have a lot of faults, but I do read every day. Book, you know, actual like paper, they're made out of paper. You I've put heard them on your chest. <laughs> So that's what it's so, so like I have no sense of it. So the only time I ever get any sense of it is on you know, if I go into public with one of my kids and someone starts screaming at me, I'm like totally baffled by it. Why are you mad at me? But apparently there is quite a bit of opposition to our show, but none of it ever filters down to me at all. I and last thing I'll say is sure. I listen very, very carefully to the negative opinions of people I respect and trust. So it's not that I'm impervious to criticism. I take it very seriously. If my wife thinks I've done something wrong, man, I brood about it because I really care. I've been married 30 years. I really care what she thinks. My children, close friends, I have a couple producers who I'm very close to personally. I listen very carefully to them. So, but I, what I don't do is listen to people who aren't speaking in good faith, who are stupid or unwise or whose own lives are demonstrably disastrous. Like, why would I care what they think? Or like malignant on purpose. But they just have no demonstrated record of success. So like, would you buy real estate from a homeless guy? Would you invest with Bernie Madoff? No, then why would you take personal life advice from someone whose personal life is in disarray? Like, I would never do that because I'm not an idiot. So I listen to people who are impressive 
And there are a million people I know who are more impressive than I am, and I listen very carefully to what they say. Um, but I'm absolutely not going to listen to, like, CNN. Why would I care what they say? I just, I literally don't care. You and I appeared on Gutfeld briefly together because you were having a debate, a formal debate, with Greg about who the dumbest person on CNN was. Yes. And you had a very strong opinion on that. There was another network mentioned at one point, and another... Uh, anchor these days at that network, and I believe you went out of your way not to mention her name. I will. You don't have to, but Nicole Wallace yesterday referred to or compared our network, Fox News, to terrorists. And yeah. I wonder you can you can engage with her or not. But with this wildly overheated rhetoric, I right. mean, what drives that? Do, do they believe it? Are they angry that we're well? I haven't them seen or? Nicole. I've known Nicole for you know more than twenty years. Nicole, when I knew her, it was called Nicole Devonish, and she was a flack. She was a you know a, a spin person. She worked for Jeb Bush, who was then governor of Florida, and she was his what do they call it communications director or something. So people like that. You know, have their merits, have their values. They're not all evil or anything, but the, their job description is lying. They lie for a living. They'll say what they're told to say. They'll say what they have to say. They're not involved in even the theoretical pursuit of truth. And I don't think that she has changed her orientation ever since. Like, whatever drives Nicole Wallace. I mean, I find her unusually venomous and lacking credibility and repulsive, actually. But that's just a gut reaction that I have because I've known her for so long and I respect her so little. But that whole category of people is really shocking to me. Look, you're on TV, okay? People, some percentage are taking you seriously. I, in my show, I'm afraid of what's happening in a lot of ways to the country, and I say that. And I know that that probably freaks people out. But I really try not to make people more afraid than I think is warranted. Last night, for example, we did a piece on the riots of the summer of 2020, and we have a lot of footage of those riots. Mm -hmm. And some of that footage is so shocking, and I'll being blunt with you, so racially divisive that we don't put it on the air at, at my request because I don't, it's real, but I don't want to give people the impression you that think this it's too is much. some hellscape. It's too much. And television is such a powerful medium. You can really evoke heavy-duty emotion in people. Television is not about conveying facts. It's about conveying feelings, emotion. So you should pause before you whip people into a frenzy. You really should. I don't always, and that's my fault, and I should. But I try to. Someone like Nicole Devonish, who has no record of achieving anything in her life. Like, Nicole, what's the sum total of, of Nicole Devonish's or whatever she's calling herself now? Like, she's just not an impressive person. So in place of actual achievement, she tries to be as extreme as she possibly can. I think in this moment, that's a moral failing. I mean it. Hmm. Let me ask you about a poll that I just saw, and it's interesting because what you do often on Tucker Carlson tonight and today and all the Tucker Carlson's yeah. is you will sometimes broach topics that others don't or won't. Yeah, right? of course. And, and something that has been discussed, and you know this, whispered about a lot, especially in D.C., is the health and the mental fitness of President Biden. Yeah. Now you have major pollsters actually asking questions I about know. it. And this Politico story has, it's a 46-48 split. Is the guy uh, mentally sharp, or the exact term was mentally fit for the job, with 48% of plurality saying, no, he's not. It's interesting to see that conversation, which was very hush, sort of off-limits for quite some time, starting to bubble up a little uh, bit more openly. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I'm so divided internally on the subject. I have such mixed feelings about it because, yes, he is 
go and see now, obviously. And that, but just to tell you, I know that I've known Joe Biden for 30 years. I always liked Joe Biden for whatever it's worth. Very warm person. Never agreed with him, but I never hated him at all. I always liked Joe Biden. I know a bunch of members of his family, and I some a couple of them very well. And I knew for a fact that the cer- certain members of the family were very concerned about his cognitive ability. They didn't expect him to get the nomination. Nobody did. And he got it, and they were freaked out about it. That's I'm not speculating. I know that for a fact. So I knew that the family believed he was in cognitive decline. So there's that, and that's news. That's news. On the other hand, I'm a human being. I'm 52. Like I hope I make it to 78. I think there's nothing sadder than someone losing his mind. I think that's that a way. Seen it with relatives, of course. Right? People you really love. Yeah. I respect old people. That's the other thing. I just instinctively respect old people. They've well, been around longer. I aspire to be yeah, old. Exactly. Day, right? Thank you. Nicely put. I aspire to be an old person. And so to mock a man's senility is like, I'm not going to do that. I probably have because I've violated <laughs> a lot of my principles in the heat of the moment. But I try not to. I don't want to be that guy. I want to treat old people with respect, even if I, you know, abhor what they're doing. And so I'm not coming out every night saying he's a vegetable. Well, first of all, he's not a vegetable, but he is in decline. Look. Pull up tape from Joe Biden four years ago. It's a totally different man. So everybody knows it. I would just say as a political matter, I felt that his obvious, whatever you want to call it, the fact he was slowing down was one of the reasons he got elected because he seemed Mm non-threatening. So he might be a little punchy. He's clearly not in his game. Whatever you, you know, however you want to say that. kind of safe, normal. Safe. Thank you. That's the word, safe. And I got that. I totally understood that. I know why people voted for Biden. I definitely do. I'm not mocking them for voting for him. They were exhausted by Trump. They're not ideological. They didn't think about the ideas that Biden represents or that Trump represents. They're just like, Trump is freaking me out. I need to get to something calm. And that's why they voted Biden. I understand it. What what we didn't understand is that Biden would be immediately taken over and used as a vessel by people who really have a hard ideological agenda that is... Yeah. How, how safe is it feeling right now? Not at all. And, you know, if Biden had come in and done things I disagree with, raised taxes or kept troops in Syria. And I would have complained about it because I don't agree with those things. However, I wouldn't have been afraid, you know, if he had made good on his promise to try to unite the country, not demonize whole segments of the population on the basis of their VAC status. You know, the worst thing that Biden has done in office so far is that press conference where he said, we're running out of patience for you people who haven't had the vaccine. Really? First of all, people are vaccinated according to Pfizer's own numbers are not living longer than people who aren't vaccinated. In fact, according to the Pfizer, they're living a little shorter. They also are, according to the actual studies, slightly more likely to pass on the virus. So, like, I'm not saying there's no benefit to the vaccine. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is there's no basis upon which to demonize people who haven't been vaccinated and blame them for the freaking pandemic. That's totally evil that he did. That was totally evil. Talk about dividing the country. That's the worst thing I've ever seen a president do. I'm still mad about it. And no one wants to talk about the vaccines because, like, you don't want to be an anti-vaxxer. Well, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've had a million vaccines. I'll probably have many more. My kids have had vaccines. But that is wrong. That is totally wrong. You cannot force people to take medical treatment against their will, period. Period. Not in this country. Because why would we stop with corona? What about HIV or tuberculosis or, do you know what I mean? Like, this is insane. And everyone's afraid to say it's insane. I'm not afraid because I'm, I, I don't care. It isn't insane. You're not afraid to say many things. But that's just, that's truly nuts. And we're going to wake up one morning and be like, I can't believe we lived through that. Why didn't we say something? It was all a dream, except 
<laughs> it wasn't. We're living it here at the Patriot Awards in Florida. It's good to see you, Tucker. Thanks for dropping by. You like got a me all spun up, Guy Benson. I, had, as I was going to like wind him up and let him go, but we have a break. Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson tonight, every weeknight, 8 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. Good to see you, sir. Thanks for doing Thanks, this. Thanks, man. Super fun. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Guy Benson Show. Wow, you can go back, listen to the podcast if you miss it. We'll put it up on YouTube as well. Here's the thing. Tucker is a fascinating guy. I disagree with him on some stuff, right? Some of the stuff on vaccines and COVID, I don't agree with him. January 6th, some of that, I don't agree with him. But we can have these conversations, do so in a sort of cheerful, respectful way. And that's fine. I think that's what we should do in America. I'll also say he has been incredibly, he, and this is the way he is, he is very, very personable, very kind. For example, my in-laws are huge fans of his. And they met him a couple years ago, and he, and this is often what he does, he treated them like they were the only people on earth, just dialed in, and just got such a kick out of it. My in-laws did. It was just, it was amazing. So it was fun to have him here, especially with, I mean, you should have seen the crowd that gathered just because he's here. I mean, he's got such a following. So... A memorable interview, certainly, here on the Guy Benson Show with Tucker. Maybe we'll get him back sometime soon. He's a busy man doing a lot of things, as we pointed out. I will also highlight, coming up tomorrow, we have just confirmed at the top of the show, Christine, top of the show tomorrow, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky. He will be here. I really want to talk to him about this spending spree that the Democrats are going to attempt. And he's seen a thing or two. And I'd imagine he has some thoughts. So Mitch McConnell on the Guy Benson Show tomorrow. Also coming up next here in the flesh, Tom Shalou, our Fox News colleague. He's the warm-up act tonight. Get everyone laughing. And not that they need to get fired up. I mean, people are stoked to be here. He'll tell us all about that, plus his impressions. That's right ahead on the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of the Guy Benson Show. Can you smell that? It's Independence. Independence Day coming to America just in a few days on Sunday, to be precise, happy almost Independence Day, everyone. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very happy to have you here. You might be listening on our affiliates across the country. You might be listening live on our stream or on Fox Nation or through odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Lots of ways to listen live, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, every weekday. If you miss any of it, we always plug the podcast, which is free, at GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. On demand, no charge to you, 
and it's seven days a week, including bonus Benson on the weekends, which is a fan favorite, especially if you want the lighter side of the show, the less hardcore politics side, which I think we can all go for from time to time because it gets a little exhausting to be all politics all the time. But we will have some politics here on this Friday edition. Let me tell you who we've got lined up. Gordon Chang will be here in the next hour. The world just marked, I would say quite solemn, solemnly, the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party and their rule in China. There have been a lot of people killed, a lot of lives snuffed out, dreams destroyed by the Chinese Communist Party. Gordon Chang is one of their leading critics. He will be here to reflect on that legacy of 100 years. So not exactly cheery on this Friday edition, but we will get more cheerful, I promise, with Jessica Tarloff, maybe some politics with her, maybe some other nonsense. And I'm really looking forward to talking with Joey Jones, who you know from Fox News Channel, wounded warrior, former Marine, although always a Marine. He'll be here talking about what America means to him ahead of July 4th. And in fact, I'll be giving out the phone number later this hour. We're going to take your calls on a very similar theme. We're not taking them just yet, but if you want to write down the phone number, toll-free here for The Guy Benson Show, you can have it handy when I ask the question and open up the phone lines. 833-456-1300. It's been a while since we took your calls. Looking forward to chatting with you. 833-456-1300. That's coming up later this hour. Let's get to a Fox News alert here and bring you the stats on coronavirus, as we do every day. 33.6 million cases in the United States, 604,756 deaths in this country from COVID. There is some good news on the coronavirus front. Two pieces that I would draw to your attention. Number one, Johnson & Johnson coming out saying their data indicates that the Johnson & Johnson one-and-done vaccine is protective against the Delta variant, the Indian variant that's been really spreading. That's good news. And also in the United Kingdom, where they have good vaccination rates, the Delta variant is now prominent. It has been spreading. There's been an uptick in cases, but there has not been a dramatic surge in hospitalizations because the vaccines work, which is excellent, excellent news. Meanwhile, the Dow here back at home up 164 points heading into that weekend, 34,796 at the moment. And it looks like all three major indices are in the green at this moment. So that's good news. Also good news, or at least I would say mixed news today, was uh, the jobs report. 150, check that, 850,000 jobs created in the United States in June. So that was certainly a significant uptick. Now, unemployment has gone up. The unemployment rate has gone up. There are still millions of unfilled job openings in the country, which is a problem. Like, really, this rebound should be a lot faster than it is, a lot stronger than it is. But as we have said several times on this show, and I think it bears repeating, and we should underscore this whenever it's relevant, the Democrats in Congress and at the White House, they insisted to go it alone on a partisan so-called COVID relief bill. It's one of the first things they did after taking over. They spent $2 trillion on it. No Republicans voted for it because it was just larded up with a ton of waste. 
and stupid spending and giveaways for things that weren't necessary and also bad incentives. They extended, for instance, very generous emergency federal unemployment supplemental benefits. And now a majority of the American people, we mentioned this earlier in the week, polling shows most people say, yeah, that's actually holding back the recovery. When the government is spending taxpayer money and borrowed money to pay people not to work or at least make staying at home and unemployment competitive with work, that is going to hold back what should be a roaring recovery as we get vaccinated, as we come out of the pandemic, because the economy was terrific before the pandemic. You just have to get out of the way. The American people needed help during the teeth of the pandemic. They got it on a bipartisan basis during the Trump administration. The Biden team came in and they had Democratic majorities, so they went a very partisan direction. And it's been sort of this this wet blanket over what should be a stronger economy. But the good news is the number is decent, 850,000 new jobs created. And here's what a lot of media outlets won't remind you of, but I will. Part of the reason that we're seeing a strengthening job market is because Republican governors, criticized by Democrats, moved forward and eliminated some of these overly generous, no longer necessary unemployment benefits from the government that were holding people back from seeking and attaining jobs. It was a perverse incentive, a disincentive to work. Republican governors stepped up to the plate and showed leadership here and eliminated some of those benefits. And so you can bet your bottom dollar that a significant chunk of this uptick, this big surge in June in jobs, is thanks to red state governors doing what was necessary to put people back to work and to break through some of the harm done by Democrats in their party line vote. Now, you also just have a recovering economy. So you'll see job gains in blue places as well. That's inevitable. I mean, it would take an enormous amount of effort and government interference to screw up this recovery. They've tried, unfortunately. But a lot of Republican governors did the right thing, and they are helping the country. They're helping their states. And indirectly, actually, they're kind of helping Joe Biden because you know that the Democrats are going to take credit for this, even though it was some of their own policies that had to be overcome by Republicans to help achieve this progress. Right. And they screamed about it. This is so mean spirit of these Republicans. But now the polling has changed. The American people can see what's in front of them. And that is one of the ingredients. So. That's not going to come up necessarily everywhere in the coverage, but I wanted to make sure that we got to it here. Now, speaking of ingredients, did you see this tweet from the White House? It's from the official White House account, and it's getting panned all over the place. Here's what they write in the tweet. Planning a cookout this year? Catch up on the news. According to the Farm Bureau, the, the cost of a 4th of July barbecue is down from last year. In fact, you must heard hot dog, the Biden economy plan is working. And that's something we can all relish. I think I cringed so hard I may have pulled a muscle. So they have their little uh, plays on words here with catch up and must heard is really bad. 
We got around to the uh, to the relish at the end here. But here's what's the most amusing about this. They have this graphic on the tweet that triumphantly says the cost of a 4th of July cookout in 2021 is down 16 cents from last year. <laughs> Congratulations, America. Now, you've just you've just saved 16 cents. Now, don't go and spend that all in one place. What can 16 cents buy you these days? I don't even know. But that's they decided someone in the White House decided maybe it was the same person who said, let's make the Republicans defund the police. Let's say it was them. There's the same strategic genius saying, hey, let's send a tweet out with these stupid plays on words celebrating that the cost of a Fourth of July barbecue supposedly is down by 16 cents over last year. Now, can I just briefly remind you, back when the Republicans passed the tax reform bill and the tax cuts, every Democrat voted against that. Middle class, working class tax cuts, they all voted against it, every single one of them. And they said it was the end of the world. The sky was falling. Armageddon was the exact word that Nancy Pelosi used. She called it Frankenstein's monster. They predicted people were going to die because of it. They suddenly were concerned about deficits, even though revenues increased under a thriving economy, jump-started and fueled by lower taxes and lower regulation. Things were going extremely well in the Republican Trump economy after that bill. Everything that they predicted, all the doomsaying was wrong. And in fact, with the corporate tax rate coming down and being more competitive globally, a bunch of American corporations cut checks to their employees wages by the way went up finally in a serious way for the first time in a very long time for the working and middle class that was great news but there were also bonuses paid out from a lot of corporations like a thousand dollars per worker and nancy pelosi called them crumbs remember that said oh well because it was like really good news immediately about a bill that she said was armageddon she said well uh these are just crumbs I think she said that with her giant pearl necklace weighing down her head as she stood in front of her what, like $50,000 refrigeration system in her house. Maybe when you're that rich, a grand is crumbs. To most people, it's not. But I'm so old I remember when the Democrats had a $1,000 bonus for workers was crumbs, but here they are tweeting out about a 16-cent savings supposedly for your 4th of July barbecue. So celebrate good times, America. And thank you, Grandpa Joe. It's like Grandpa Joe showed up for Christmas but forgot that it was Christmas, so he gave you 16 pennies in your stocking wrapped in aluminum foil. That's sort of the energy I'm getting from this. And by the way, some people were pointing out on Twitter that it's actually very misleading. The math a bit disingenuous because a year ago there were food processing disruptions with coronavirus. If you compare the actual items, the same items on the 4th of July barbecue food to 2019 prices, the prices would be up 8%. Because we all feel like the prices of things are going up, including food. Jimmy Princeton on Twitter says, and don't even ask about the cost of that grill or gas 
or a car or lumber if you're trying to build something. Inflation is real because of all this insane spending that the Democrats have done. And they are cherry-picking a misleading figure to camouflage the fact that, in fact, prices are up 8%, and instead say, hey, you've got to, thanks to us and our big, amazing economic policy, you're saving 16 cents, is the claim. Good job. Really good messaging there. I feel so grateful, don't you? Okay, we've got a break. When we come back, I want to share with you a piece of polling news from a new Fox News survey that actually I think is is sad to me. It makes me sad ahead of July 4th. But I think that there are optimistic elements as well. And then I want to ask you all a question about this country ahead of Independence Day. And I want to take your calls at 833-456-1300. We'll get to all of that as soon as we come back. It's Friday on The Guy Benson Show. Heading into that long weekend, you're listening to the very best of The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show. There's a new Fox News poll of the American people as we are approaching the 245th birthday of the United States of America. And the write-up says not everyone is as bullish on the red, white, and blue as they used to be. Almost 7 out of 10 voters, 69%, say America is the greatest country on earth, which is down significantly. So, I mean, the good news is 7 out of 10 of us believe this. That's a huge majority. But just a decade ago, 2011, that number was 84%. So that's a drop of 15 percentage points in 10 years. 84% in 2011 said this is the greatest country in the world. It's now down to 69%. And why has that number dropped so precipitously? Well, the lowest demographic numbers in terms of groups who agree in the poll that America is the greatest country in the world are young people and self-identified Democrats. Among Democrats, just 62% say that America is the best country in the world. So, you know, that's roughly a 60-40 split of Democrats, 40% saying, yeah, it's somewhere else. We're not the best country in the world. And I would say that's probably sort of the the ascendant squad generation of Democrats disproportionately represented there. And then among young people, it's only 54 percent, barely a majority of younger Americans say that we're the best country in the world. Fifty four percent. Getting close to parity. Among America's young which I think is such a damning indicator of our education system and of our culture. We're a flawed country with a checkered past and some really bad things, not just in our past, but in our present, right? I think we can acknowledge that. That does not change our greatness. 
It doesn't overwhelm our greatness, our compassion, our generosity, our values, our principles. And I think to have this much lack of confidence among our own people, especially upcoming generations, I think that is really sad. With just over half of young Americans saying this is the greatest country in the world. I'm one of those in the 54% slight majority. I'd imagine many of you agree that this is the greatest country in the world. My question for you is why? People hear the negatives all the time. There's a fixation, especially these days, on the negatives. In your view, if you believe, if you're part of the 70% of Americans who believe this is the greatest country in the world, why? What does this country mean to you specifically? If you're a veteran, if you're just a citizen, if you're an immigrant, what makes this country the greatest in the world? 833-456-1300. Toll-free number here. 833-456-1300. Let's counter some of the negativity. Let's talk about why we love the country. Be specific. 833-456-1300. Your connection to The Guy Benson Show. We are taking your calls coming up. and our history not just in I think like a constructive way but in a more destructive way there's another side to the story that 70% of us believe that we're the greatest country in the world 833-456-1300 833-456-1300 what does this country mean to you why do you think it's the greatest in the world but as I was going to say in this Fox News poll just a decade ago it was 84%. That was the percentage of Americans who said that we are number one in our minds. The best place to live in the world. 84%. That's now 69%. It's down 15 percentage points in a decade. I saw that NPR traditionally does a reading of the Declaration of Independence. This year, they added like a trigger warning and a big caveat about how this could be offensive and all this other stuff. About how, you know, America hasn't lived up to the promise. I mean, this is the way that elite culture is treating the country and our founding in a lot of ways. So it's not surprising that the numbers have dipped. But down from 84% to 69% in a decade's time is significant. And among young Americans under the age of 45, just a bare majority say that we're the best country in the world, 54%. And there are probably some people listening right now who would say, yeah, I'm not sure we are the best country in the world. If you disagree, if you think that America is the greatest nation on the planet, I would say the greatest nation in the history of the planet, call us and tell us why. Talk to those people. 
Give them your story. Give them your perspective. Why you are proud of this country and think we're number one. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Let's start with Joe in Arizona. Joe, I'm glad you called. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Hey, man. Happy birthday, America. So happy 4th of July. Uh, I know got to be quick. Um, first of all, you have the opportunity in America to go to school and become pretty much any, anything you want. Look at, look at our past, like Obama. He became president. He was educated here. Okay. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that, um, that, that, that 69% now, because look, it's a double-edged sword. These, the educational system, not all of it, but a lot of it has been bludgeoning us with bad, bad news about this country and the same, like, we, you know, we're, we're a horrible race and, you know, being white people. And it's a horrible thing to be an American because of our past. B.S. That's just B.S. Okay. The last thing I want to say is this. Look, if it was such a bad country, why are we being overrun at the border? Why yeah, is people that? want to come here. Yeah, right. So many people want to come here and they come. We take in a million legal immigrants a year. People work their tails off, save up as much money as they can to immigrate to this country because of the opportunity, because of the freedom, because of the security. There's so much that's wonderful here. And I think immigration, whether people are coming here legally or illegally, and there has to be a distinction, of course, we have to you know, defend our sovereignty, but the desire of so many people around the world to come here, it's not an it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. And I think that is a good point, Joe, out there in Arizona. Thanks for the phone call. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. If you are among the dwindling but still supermajority of the American people, almost 70% of us who think that this is the greatest country in the world, my question to you is why? I think for a long time it was just sort of taken for granted I said, yeah, of course we are. Now there's a lot of people who don't agree, and we actually have to make a case to those people. Actually, yes, here's why we say it. It's not just some slogan. We believe it for reasons. What is your reason? 833-456-1300. John calling from New York. You're up, John. Thanks for calling. Yes, thank you for having me. I got to tell you, I usually don't call the radio to talk, but... Uh... I got to tell you, I immigrated here 20 years ago, and I uh, served in the military. Uh, that was part of the process of uh, getting my uh, citizenship. And I can tell you that it, this is the greatest opportunity that I ever got to uh, is, is, is to continue up. My uh, the, the, the previous uh, gentleman that was talking about becoming the most of what you can be in this country as far as getting an opportunity. I would never, ever would have gotten the opportunity to, uh, to to become what I am right now if it wasn't for the United States. It is a role model for every country in the world and the envy of the world. So we are very, very fortunate to live here. John, can I ask you, you said that you immigrated to the United States two decades ago. Where did you come from? I'm originally from Israel. Okay, and you moved here, you became a citizen, you served in the military. What's your message? So some people might say, you know, that's fine, he had his experience in the military, that's not my experience, and they want to dwell on a lot of the negatives. How do you respond when you encounter people who think that way? I can tell you that as far as your personal right as an individual, 
And as far as becoming on either side of the of the political spectrum, just the fact that you can speak your mind, you can speak your uh, you can speak your piece, oppose things, support things. You you never have this kind of opportunity in any other country in the world. Matter of fact, we are the only country that you could. Uh, pretty much express your opposition to any form, to any form of government, left or right, and not have to worry about any repercussion. In the United States, yeah, I mean, even people- and John, just to build on that, even some of our great allies in the West, their speech codes are very, very restrictive compared to our First Amendment. And just that freedom alone, the First Amendment alone, could be, in my mind, an answer to this question why we're the best nation on earth. The First Amendment goes a long way in answering that question for me. John in New York, we're glad you're here in America. Thanks for the phone call. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. There's now a challenge for people who love this country and believe that we're the greatest nation on earth. There are fewer of us now than there were even 10 years ago. This is what the polling shows. And a lot of younger people don't believe it. So I'm asking you to make your case why, if you believe that we're the best country, why do you believe that? 833-456-1300. Back to the phones. 833-456-1300. Let's go to Ashley in Missouri. You're up. Hi, Ashley. Hi. I'm just saying the fact that I'm 23, so it's essentially my generation that seems to be causing all the the debate and the issues, but the fact alone that we can have the ability, as John said, to have debates and not to be immediately silenced is extremely, it's uh, it's American only thing that you can't do that. And like Russia, North Korea, that's that's a big no-no, but here you can do that. And it's, it's not only allowed, but it's encouraged that you're taught from a young age, suddenly you don't like something, you can change it. I feel like yep. that's, Self-determination. That is America. I, that's America. Ashley, why do you think, because you're younger than I am by more than a decade, but I'm in this same category, Americans under the age of 45, only a little more than half of us believe it's the best country. Why? Why do you think that is? I think mainly because it's America, the whole the land of opportunities. That it, it, it may not happen the way that you want it to happen, but eventually you get there versus other countries where you're – if you're born in this specific area of the world, you know, you're, that's your country, you stay there. There is no ability to progress. It's either stay where you are or, even worse, you could go down in the social ladder. Whereas yeah, America, no, no, you can I... essentially be born into absolute poverty, you know, pay- paycheck to paycheck. But then there is that room for advancement that eventually you will get somewhere. Yeah, you're right, Ashley. And, uh, there's apparently a lot of people in our relative age range who don't agree with that. And I guess I understand it because of a lot of propaganda, frankly, that's being shared a lot of the time. And I think it's harmful. And this is why I wanted to do this topic. And I appreciate you, Ashley, listening out there in Missouri and calling in. It means a lot. Thank you. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. You can be broad. You can be specific. Why is this the greatest nation on earth? And why do people need to know that? 833-456-1300. Cheryl is in Rhode Island. Cheryl, I'm glad that you called. Welcome. 
Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you bet. the country means to me freedom. Um, the ability to say my opinion and beliefs, at least till recently. Um, the freedom to get as educated as much as I want. The freedom to prosper so that, you know, I can have my kids have a better life than me. And uh, the freedom to practice the religion of my choice, you know, without being, like, ostracized. Those are excellent reasons. Right to the point, succinct call, great call, Cheryl, in Rhode Island. I'll be driving through your state later tonight, I hope, if I make it that far. I think the traffic's going to be rough, but I'll wave hello, Cheryl. Thanks for the call. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Vivian is out in California. Vivian, thanks for calling. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Hi, so what, what's your answer to the question, Vivian? Well, uh, I'm an immigration to this country from China 35 years ago. And uh, since I live up here, and I know this is the greatest country in the entire whole world, which is I've been to travel a lot, and then the, each time when I travel, more I travel, more I miss up this country. I feel like I'm so lucky to live in this wonderful country in the entire whole world because this country gives everybody equal opportunity to get a success. You can, if you want to make money, you make money. If you want to get a high education, you can have it. Freedom, and then treat people equally. That's really powerful, Vivian, especially as someone who immigrated here from China, where unfortunately a lot of what you just mentioned is just not the case for Chinese citizens under that form of government. And I think that your perspective is especially valuable because there are a lot of people who were born into this and they've been given this amazing gift of American citizen, uh, citizenship from the moment they were born. And maybe that appreciation that you have just isn't there. But you've seen the other side of this, Vivian. And I really appreciate you calling in and, and you sharing that experience because I think people need to hear it. Great call, Vivian. Thanks for listening. 833-456-1300. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Chris is up next. Chris, thanks for calling. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, why is this country the greatest? We have everything in this country. Um, through my service in the military, I got to see places in the Middle East, Afghanistan, old Soviet bloc countries, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. They don't have anything there. Simple things like running water, bathrooms, people don't have. I didn't realize how spoiled I was till I got to that part of the world. And that's what makes our country great, that we, we can do that, we have everything. Everybody wants to come here, we all have a choice. If we want, you know, what gets me is everyone wants to complain about America, this younger generation that's never done anything, okay? And that's what frustrates me. If you don't like it, you can leave. We have a choice, you know? Not only do we have a choice, and but we got a platform and we can talk on whatever we want. Go say yep. some of the things in China or North Korea that some people are saying about our country. Or go turn your flag down if you represent North Korea in the Olympics or burn it on the stand. They'll execute you, you know? So that that's why I love America, you know? And, and, and we're spoiled as Americans. We, we really are. And that's why people are banging down our door to come here. Oh, and by the way, Chris, we're spoiled, a lot of us, because of folks like you and John, who called earlier, who served and protected us. I think, you know, we civilians 
too often lose sight of that, and it allows us to feel spoiled, but we should never be spoiled. We should always be grateful, and we're grateful to you for your service, Chris. Thank you. 833-456, you bet. 833-456-1300. That's the phone number here. Why, if you believe it, why, what's your case to maybe more dubious Americans that America's the best country in the world? Why do you believe that? 833-456-1300. More of your calls coming up next. You're listening to the best of the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Happy almost Independence Day. Thank you for listening. 833-456-1300. The question is, why is this country the greatest country on earth? 70% or so of Americans agree, but more and more Americans disagree. If you think we're the best, the question is why? Make that case. I'm going to try to get to as many calls as I can because the lines are packed with patriots. We only have a few minutes left, so let's get to them. Robert listening in Georgia on our affiliate, 106.3 Extra in Atlanta. Robert, glad you called. Thanks. Uh, I would say the birth of this country and the whole process behind it, the Bill of Rights. The rights that we have and just the fact that, you know, they the government recognizes that they come from the creator and that they can't be taken from us. They're natural rights. Yep. And that is very rare. Time it's, before. Yep. It's very rare in the world. And we take these things for granted that we're allowed to do our God given rights in a lot of other places, including advanced countries. It's not the case. Good point, Robert. 833-456-1300. Let's go to Louisiana. Braxton, you're up. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for the call. Right. Uh, honestly, I think America is great because of two specific reasons. One of them is we can do whatever we want, and whatever like consequences or whatever rewards we get is because of our own actions, not because of like the government telling you to do this or somebody else higher up on the food chain telling you to do it. And the second reason is because you can be whoever you want to be. Because, I mean, I've seen, because I personally, I grew up in a trailer park, and we moved up from that to a townhouse and then to an actual house. And I'm I'm amazed that people don't understand this. Like, they don't see through other people's eyes. They don't walk in other people's shoes like, huh, maybe he's got a point. That's awesome, Braxton, and congratulations, and good for you. Hard work and moving up, the American dream. Thanks for the call. Seth, New Hampshire. Seth, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. I uh, just wanted to make two points. Uh, I've been listening to your show for a while, and uh, this uh, question really struck me. And I just want to voice out there real quick that from an article that I read that gave the premise of how America has lost the side of prosperity. And I, if, if I had to make my argument, it would be that the rising generation has lost a lot of that idea of what prosperity means it means of arduous work you can reap the blessings and prosper and create a a life of serenity and freedom uh that is that is uh, that is uh based off of your own uh mental contrition and physical uh with an added uh physical well-being uh for your for your children uh for your wife you know for for your family and that's that's what america built on as And I know in some ways, in some places now, you're not supposed to talk about hard work, but it's a huge part of what built this country and what allows this country to continue to prosper. Hard work and people 
moving up like we just heard from Braxton in Louisiana. I wish I could take more calls on this because they are pouring in, but I'm encouraged. You're listening to the best of the Guy Benson Show. Clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. It is the Friday happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast and everything you need, always available free of charge, GuyBensonShow.com. And the Friday happy hour, every happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, crisp, refreshing, and we love it here. We hope that you try it if you're 21 plus, of course. Always drink responsibly, TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you, or you can order online, TheLongDrink.com. We had an incredible opportunity recently to chat with Ryan and Bill Ferguson, one of the most insane stories about a wrongful conviction I've ever heard. If you missed it, you've got to buckle up and listen to this interview with dream killer Ryan Ferguson and his father. So a few weeks ago here on The Guy Benson Show, we were talking about one of producer Christine's bad dreams that she was having. And over the course of that nonsense conversation, my brain took an off-ramp and went down the path of dreams. And I remembered, it just flickered, a documentary that I had watched now probably a year or a year and a half ago called Dream Killer, which is now available on Netflix. And it was about this guy who spent a decade in prison for a murder he did not commit. And it turned out that I actually have, through my husband, a family connection to this guy. And I found the documentary, honestly, one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. I could not believe that what happened to my next guest would be possible in the United States of America under our criminal justice system, which we all know is imperfect and needs improvement, but you hope would have enough safeguards to avoid the absolute travesty that occurred years ago. Ryan Ferguson spent nearly 10 years, as I mentioned, in prison. He was wrongfully convicted of a 2001 murder in his hometown, Columbia, Missouri. It was a sports journalist, if I recall correctly, who was murdered in a parking lot At the time of the murder, Ferguson was 17 years old and in high school. He was arrested two years later based on evidence that is not evidence. And he was convicted on that fake evidence. He is now, thank God, out of prison because really of the work of one person who is also in studio with me today. Ryan now is roughly my age, a few months apart. He's a certified personal trainer. He's an advocate against false convictions which would make sense. I think I might dedicate my life to that, too, if I were in his shoes. I think I might be a lot angrier, frankly, and more bitter of a person if I went through what he went through. He's author of the book Stronger, Faster, Smarter, A Guide to Your Most Powerful Body. Ryan Ferguson, we'll get to your father here in a second, but I'm delighted to meet you. It's sort of surreal having watched this movie. It's like like you're a celebrity in my mind. I'm grateful that you spent some time and came in studio here to join us. Yeah, Guy, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And really any opportunity to discuss our criminal justice system, which is inherently good, but does have flaws. And and we can discuss what 
can and needs to be fixed within that system, it's a, it's a great opportunity. So let's just talk through the basics of the case. And I would strongly encourage folks who are listening right now, do yourself a favor, make an appointment with your Netflix subscription and watch Dreamkiller, honestly, and just buckle up. But for people who may not have Netflix or what have you, we don't have to go into the entire story, but just give us the big bullet points, the timeline. You're a high school student. Someone gets murdered in your hometown. Two years later, you get arrested. Why? Great question. Uh, you know, I often ask myself that same question. Why? Uh, so a murder happened when I was in high school. You don't really think much about it. You know, that happens in, in your town. And uh, it was weird. I remember, you know, people were like, wow, that's a Halloween night. Somebody's murdered. That's all you think about it for two years. And then I'm arrested. They don't tell me why. And they don't even tell me what for. I have midterms the next day. I'm more concerned with my midterms. Then talking to the police, I'm like, they're just going to do their job, ask me what they got to ask me, and then I'll go home. Uh, long story short, a friend of mine from high school had a dream about the murder, unbeknownst to me, and he literally tells the police, if I did it, Ryan, I'm Ryan, must have been with me. And that's what I was arrested on. That's why they started questioning me. And A, all, a yes. dream. This is why it's called Dream Killer. Correct. A friend of yours from home had a dream that he may have committed this murder, and if he did it, if... You did it with him. Correct. And you get arrested. To me, that's wild even to just get arrested, let alone all the steps forward to conviction, which obviously happened because you end up in prison for 10 years. You must have still felt like, okay, well, this is clearly a wrongful arrest. This is going to get cleared up somehow. I mean, I didn't do this. This is crazy. Dreams are not evidence. What the hell is going on? At what point did you start to realize, uh-oh, this might turn into something where I could go to prison based on like testimony, quote unquote, of a quote unquote co-conspirator based on a dream? That's a great question. I, you know, it, it took time to realize what was really happening to me. Whenever I was picked up and questioned, I didn't realize at the time that I was under arrest. I mean, they arrested me without an investigation. So I was arrested and then they investigated. So for months and months, evidence would come out and it would all show that I was innocent or I was not there. It would help prove my case. And I'm in the county jail at this time. And my bond, I didn't have bond for nine months. And then they gave me a $20 million bond. $20 million. $20 million. Other people with the same charge had a bond for $500,000. Mine was $20 million. So you can see that they were biased against me. It wasn't about right and wrong and, and a fair hearing, essentially. It was about trying to prove a point that we are going to arrest you. We're going to put you in prison. And you're a horrible person without having done any investigation. So... Every time evidence would come back, like the tire tool that they tried to say was used, and it showed that it was not used and it had nothing to do with the crime. As the weapon. As the weapon, correct. Uh, it had nothing to do with the crime. It would come back, and I'm like, okay, they're going to come open the doors and let me out of this cage and back into society because now they can see that I'm innocent. And time after time, things like that would happen, and they never opened those doors. And so months of my life went by, a year of my life went by, and then I realized it doesn't matter what evidence proves my innocence. They're going to try to convict me no matter what. We're going to get to how this all finally unraveled and how you did get out in a second. But talk about the conviction. Talk about that moment where the jury decides that you are guilty of something that you did not do based on evidence that is, I mean, flimsy doesn't even begin to cover the evidence that I put in air quotes that they had against you. And yet it was enough in this trial to send you away. You have this this sort of shock, I'm sure this numbness of, I just got convicted. You then go to prison. 
And then as a follow-up question, at what point does prison start to feel normal for you? Because it wasn't just a few months. It was a decade, a prime decade of your life. You're, you know, in your 20s. Yes. Your 20s were stolen from you. 19 to 29, uh, all my 20s, basically. And the, and the question about trial and being convicted, uh, it's a very interesting one to me because as I'm sitting there and they're presenting this quote-unquote evidence— the prosecution knows I'm innocent. He knows the evidence that he's putting forth is not accurate. Remind us of his name. Kevin Crane. Kevin Crane. Who is still a judge. He's now a judge. Yep. Has not been held accountable for his actions, which are a lot of actions that you can prove that he knows he put on perjured testimony. People he knew was lying to put me in prison for really 40 years. Fortunately, I only did 10. But uh, if it were up to him and we're up to the Columbia police who also know I'm innocent, I would still be in prison wasting away until I'm in my mid-50s. So that's that's hard to, to fathom. And while I'm in trial and they're lying to the jury, I'm looking back at the people, the jury and the people in the, the audience there, and they're looking at me like I'm some kind of caged animal. And it was the worst feeling you can imagine because I'm just a normal kid. I was in college. And now these people are looking at me like I'm some disgusting thing, you know? Mm. And it's the look on these people's faces. is It was the hardest thing for me to get over. And I knew there, I basically had no chance because my attorney was not very good. Kevin Crane. Well, that is a very kind way of putting it, I would say. We'll <laughs> yeah. get into that in a second. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. And Kevin Crane, the prosecutor who was corrupt, was, was corrupt. That's the only way. And is. is. I mean, I don't know. You can't shed that stain if you do something like that. That is a lifelong mark of corruption in my book. Certainly. And it blows my mind that he still has a job at all in the law, that he still is a member of the bar, let alone a judge, which I think speaks poorly of everyone involved in that process. Quickly on the prison stuff. Certainly. Because we are creatures of habit and routine. At some point, your life, your routine, your habit became that of an inmate. Right. Um, you know, you're a young guy. You're a good-looking guy. Prison is a scary place. How did you make that adjustment? What were your coping mechanisms? How did you survive? Because to me, it's like you have to survive... You're there. It would be hard enough if, if you were there and you deserved it. You were there and you didn't deserve it. And there's a bunch of people in prison who say, oh, I didn't do it. Right. That's that's a common trope. In your case, you actually didn't do it. And the, and the trial was an absolute sham. How did you have the mental ability, sort of the mental fortitude to survive for a decade behind bars? Great question. And uh, I can honestly say it all goes back to family and the support and the strength that they gave me, the advice. When I first got arrested, it was the second day, I think, I was talking to my father on the phone, and he said, man, obviously I'd do anything I can to help protect you, but I can't be in there with you. You have to do everything that you can to make yourself stronger, faster, and smarter if you want to survive this. And I did. I started working out that day. I started reading every day. Uh, that day, I, I mean, I, I spent six hours a day reading and two hours a day working out. And so that kind of helped me get over some of the mental and physical barriers that I probably would have had uh, dealing with a lot of really bad people. And so... Going to prison, as terrifying as it was, I was somewhat prepared because I was smarter than a lot of the people there because I had been working on myself. I had two years in the county jail to prepare, and I was bigger than most people. So basically, it's like the bear in the woods theory, I, I think. And it's like, as, as long as I have somebody in the woods with me that's slower than me, I'm going to be safe, right? Mm. And prison's full of people who are dumber and weaker than I was, and I kind of leaned on that. You know, I, uh, If you just stay out of a lot of the bad things, uh, gambling, some of the weird sex things that go on there. like It's a weird, strange world. As long as you stay out of those kind of corners, then you're going to be okay, and other people are going to find the problems, and, uh, and you can just kind of exist. Ryan, let's hold it right there. Let's take a break. When we come back, 
one of the most amazing elements of this story is your relationship with your father. We will bring in your father as soon as we come back. You're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show. This is the best of The Guy Benson Show. Ryan and Bill Ferguson joining me in studio. Ryan spent 10 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And Ryan, you were talking about family and support. Let's bring in your dad, Bill Ferguson, father of Ryan, who is the hero of this movie. He's the hero of this story. I cannot tell you, sir, how much respect I have for you. I mean, what is so incredible about this story, it's not just about grave injustice, and it is. It is also about some of the most incredible determination that I've ever seen. And you knew that your son was innocent. The world did not know that. The world had passed this whole thing by. He's rotting away in prison. You never got over it. You never allowed it really to be the new normal. You could not stand that this injustice was happening to your son. Talk about the process, the decisions that you made, and how you went about setting this right. Well, again, that's a great uh, great question, Guy. Um, when the process started, we were all shocked. The whole family was, was totally shocked. I was just, just couldn't believe something like that could happen. And um, so within 24 hours, I realized this is real. And I know enough about the law that uh, you have to, if you depend on a lawyer or other people to rectify it, then you're going to be very disappointed. So I knew uh, that I was going to have to get busy. I would have to investigate the case myself. Was this after the conviction? No, no, this is at the this arrest. before, okay. The arrest. And I did even more after the conviction. But I, uh, one of the first things I got was what's called discovery. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, th- they don't want to give it to you. I mean, uh, we had to... It's have, what the prosecution has. It's what they that, have as, as evidence, and you have a right to see it. That, that is correct. Uh, but it's difficult to get, even though you have a right to it. And uh, we uh, had to get the judge uh, to compel the prosecutor to give us uh, the discovery, which we deserve, which we should have by law. And finally, finally, she gave him an ultimatum uh, that he had a, a week to, to give us the discovery. Once I got the discovery, which is uh, thousands of pages, or maybe I should say hundreds, a couple thousand pages, uh, I just read through that syllable by syllable, familiarizing myself with the case, seeing how it happened, how it all came together. And then we started putting our case together. Your son, Ryan, who we've been speaking to here on The Guy Benson Show, was, uh, I'd say, extremely, exceedingly polite when he referred to his defense attorney as perhaps lackluster. Uh, I was cringing, cringing as I watched this documentary, some of the courtroom scenes where it, it was just mind-bending incompetence. Like, what what are you doing? Do you, Did you do any preparation at all for this? And this prosecutor who was, I would, I would almost use the word evil, was also pretty sharp and could run circles around this person mm. and convince the jury of something that didn't happen. If that's how I was feeling, watching it, knowing the outcome, I cannot fathom the frustration, to put it mildly, that you must have been feeling sitting there in the courtroom watching this, like, what are you, what are you doing? Well, it is shocking, uh, especially when you're experiencing it firsthand and knowing there's nothing you can do about it because the process, it's like a car going off a cliff. Uh, you're in the car, you're going off the cliff, and you know what's going to happen next. It's going to be a crash. Yeah, but you're and in the back seat. Then you're in the back seat. You can't even reach the street. Well, even if you could, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's the way you are in court. You you have 
Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. I'm in the back seat. I cannot get hold of the steering wheel, and even if I could, I could steer the the car back up the cliff. Right, and it's the Grand Canyon in this case because your son's right. going to prison for murder, a murder he didn't commit. Correct. So he's now in prison. Right. On the say-so of this other guy who's also in prison, right, who right. clearly has all sorts of issues. When you see him in the documentary, he's he is, uh, you know, a character and sort of this this tragic person, and I, I imagine there's probably some anger towards him. I, how could there not be? What were a few of the turning points? Because getting a conviction overturned is actually really hard, as you know. I mean, you went on this nationwide tour. Mm. You're driving a car around, begging people to pay attention to the case of your son, and it actually worked, but not for a long time through setback after setback, but then, at last, the thing started to turn. The ship started to turn. How did you turn the ship? You know, I uh, as a kid, I used to watch a show that was called Gunsmoke, and then almost uh, uh, every show, they'd have a cattle stampede. The cows would run off, and the, uh, the cowboys would get out in front of them and turn the herd turn you know back and and that's the way it is in a trial uh, being convicted or being charged it's a cattle stampede and good luck on stopping a cattle stampede you've got to turn the herd how do you do that well it turns out i did a uh, a story with the local newspaper and he was very sympathetic to our situation after i showed him the evidence and he goes i i think that your son's being wrongfully uh, charged i said thank this you this is a journalist a local this journalist See, this and, is where this is where journalism really can do good in this world. It's why a lot of people get into journalism, because when the truth is on your side, sometimes the media, because they get demonized, and I think <laughs> they deserve it a lot of the time, sometimes they do a lot of good, and I think it's safe to say you, Ryan, would still be in prison today if not for the press. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, we wrote this story, and I did something a little unusual. I, I said to the uh, the reporter, he was the top reporter, for the Tribune, the the, 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 uh, the person had worked, that had died, and uh, uh, he wanted to do The murder it. victim yes. had worked at that. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so he, he I, I said, you know, I'd like to do the interview with you, but I, I do have a stipulation. He goes, okay, well, what is it? I said, well, uh, I want to read your print before you put it out. He goes, oh, we don't do that. You don't understand. I go, well, you don't understand. If I cannot do that, this is going to be a really short interview. And he goes, this is the biggest case that's happened in Boone County. And I really want to be a part of it. I want to write the story. I said, and I'd like for you to, but I want, I'm not, I'm not looking at your print. Uh, not looking at your story to be critical or try to get you to change. I just want to make sure what you put in there is correct. And he goes, that's it. I said, yeah. I said, he goes, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll send you uh, my draft, and let's just see how it goes. He goes, I've never done this before. Mm. but but uh, Extenuating circumstances. Yes. And he goes, I, I do want the story. And he goes, I, I, your reputation precedes you. I know you won't do it uh, unless <laughs> unless you get your way. Yeah. You're said, okay. very stubborn, but you had to be. I had to be. If you were not stubborn, Ryan would be in prison still. I think so. Our conversation with Ryan and Bill Ferguson continues after this on The Guy Benson Show. On the Guy Benson Show, thank you for listening. Ryan and Bill Ferguson in studio talking about this shocking, wrongful conviction and finally justice. What actually turned it? What finally shook loose where you could prove the stuff that you knew to be true? How were you finally able to prove it and also in such a way that it was like eligible for appeal? Because some things may prove seemingly that someone is innocent, but it, under the rules of evidence and under the law— 
it actually doesn't count. And, and it's not something where you would have standing to challenge something. So how did you get around that? What was the tipping point or tipping points? Well, uh, so that story, he wrote five parts, and it came to Manhattan. It came to uh, 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 48 Hours, and, they, and the producer saw it. And the producer thought, we'd like to do the story. So they contacted me, and they said, we'd like to come to Columbia and, and talk to you about this story. So they said, what should we do? I said, let's walk the crime scene. And I had a huge three-ring notebook with all the information in it. Yeah, I remember. And, and, and so we walked the crime scene, and I said, now right over here, uh, the, uh, the police did such and such. And um, uh, the reporter said, now, how, how do you know that, Mr. Ferguson? And I said, oh, it's in Police Report 254. She goes, do you have Police Report 254? I said, yeah, it's right here. Okay, so we went around the whole tour like that, and then we got back to the car where we started. Uh, she goes, could we have a copy of that? And I go, this is your copy. I gave her the entire notebook because <laughs> I anticipated that they would want that. The thing that made it unique, and I you know, look, look at a lot of those crime shows, the thing that made this unique is that uh, uh, I was able to to give them documented evidence. And Ryan and I said right from the very beginning, we're not going to say or do anything unless we can document it. We're not going to get into rumors, innuendos. We're not going to talk badly about people. We're only going to talk about the facts. If we cannot use documentation, then we're not going to talk about it. And so by dateline, or 40 hours looking at the uh, police reports, that's the documentation, then that gave them the courage to go forth and really get into this case because now it's not based on people crying and upset and, you know, acting right, like It's not that. emotions and feelings. It's some verifiable facts. Right. And, and, and there, were, there were eyewitnesses. Right. right. So it wasn't just the dream. It wasn't like, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this man had a dream. This other guy over here, the defendant, was in the dream and therefore sent him to prison. They found some witnesses who claimed that Ryan Ferguson was there and... That also was a big shift in this case when they started to recant. Someone reached out to you, right? Yes. Uh, well, several people. Uh, one in particular, uh, we created a webpage, and I, I, I knew sooner or later that somebody would get on onto the computer, would get onto the webpage, and she did. And she goes, I'd like to talk to you sometime. And I met her at the crime scene, uh, like, uh, uh, was after the trial, actually. And, uh, and she said, I just want to tell you face-to-face uh, -face, that that was not your son. That was not Ryan Ferguson there. And uh, I said, Jill, you are 100% certain that my son, Ryan Ferguson, was not the person uh, that was at the crime. She goes, absolutely. I said, okay, great. So that led us to... And the prosecutor knew that. Oh, absolutely. Right, and Ryan wants to jump in. Yeah, I'd love to jump in here because the prosecution knew that... She told that to the prosecution. Yeah. And she described him as scary and manipulative and... He did not give us that information. Mm -hmm. There, that is a little piece of a little bit of all the information he didn't give us. He so hid the, a lot the of the discovery that was held from you, which is not allowed. That would be misconduct, right? So was Absolutely. that was his misconduct ultimately the way you were able to get your foot in the door to get this thing overturned? Well, ultimately, it's called a Brady violation. It's a very technical term, a Brady violation, and it started. In, um, 1963, that you have to reveal information. But that's the key thing. You just elaborated on that, that uh, that Shauna Arndt, she's the, the witness, told the prosecutor on two occasions that Ryan was not the person, but he didn't tell that to anybody. And when the trial occurred, she was a, a witness. He, I did not ask her, can you point out the person you saw 
in the uh, parking lot. Although the defense attorney didn't either, right? Like, am I remembering that correctly? That's correct. But, oh. but, but, I, under, but I understand why. There, there's a reason for that. Uh, no, no defense attorney would ask it because he didn't know what she was going to right, say. Right, but you can. I guess she. It wasn't his role to prep that that witness. But at the same time, it's a little he tricky. Could have asked that question if you guys had been provided with the statements that right. this witness had given it, the prosecutor that it wasn't right. you. Then he would have had Thank the you. ammo. So instead, that's he right. it was just one thing after another that led to the conviction. But then it starts to unwind at some point. A very prominent, high-powered lo- lawyer gets involved because oh. the initial attorney was terrible. <laughs> In comes Kathleen Zellner. Right. So, Ryan, talk to us about Kathleen Zellner. And was there a point where you – because I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. I would, at some stage of this thing, refuse to give myself any more hope ever again because you would, I'd, I'd imagine, build up hope only to get crushed and then crushed and then crushed. And I would might just say, like, enough. Did Kathleen Zellner's involvement start to light that flicker again of, of hope? And when did you start to maybe suspect, I really do have a chance of getting out of here? Kathleen definitely changed how I felt about the whole situation and when I thought I would be getting out of prison. She came on board in 2009, and shortly thereafter... And you've been in prison at that point for how long? Uh, since 2004. All right, so, so five years, yes. halfway through this yeah. is when she got on board. That was a rough so five years. <laughs> you st- but then you had five more years. That's that's the crazy thing. Five more years. Yeah, I got out in 2000. And, and even with somebody as amazing as Kathleen Zellner right. and all the evidence that we had already dug up, proving my innocence, the whole world can see this at this point, they, it still took that long to get out. And that's what, you know, one of the many issues with our criminal justice system is if it is wrong, if it is proven to be wrong, there are not many avenues for relief. They want to maintain the, the right, a jury verdict of is basically final, right? With Pretty very honest. few exceptions. They like the finality and they want to leave it that way. There's a case in Missouri, went to the Supreme Court, and they they literally argued, even though they knew and had DNA evidence that the person on death row was innocent, that they should allow him to be killed to keep the finality of conviction. Yeah, see, this is part of the reason, just as a digression politically, I'm a conservative. I used to be in favor of the death penalty. I am not anymore, as it currently stands, because I don't think it is okay for the state to end someone's life who has a chance of being innocent. And in your case, if it were a capital case, right, these things drag on forever on appeal. But the idea that you, Ryan, could have been put to death for this is absolutely terrifying and unacceptable to me. They're going to try, but... You are now here sitting in a studio with me in New York City because you had the ability to at least pursue all of this stuff while still living and breathing and not being put to death by the state based on an egregious series of mistakes and, in fact, aggressive malfeasance, intentional Mm -hmm. malfeasance of the state. That's part of the reason why I turned against the death penalty. At least, you know, we can get into a more nuanced conversation. It's, It's a little bit more of a gray area than that for me on a policy level. But... I want to make sure that we get as much of this in as we can. At some point in this process, the other guy, the dreamer, who's also in prison, he writes you. He writes you a letter that ultimately concludes with him testifying at your retrial. I know I'm jumping way ahead, but we have to. You finally get enough evidence on your side and you marshal enough facts to convince the process, the system, to give you another crack at it. Once you had that second opportunity... I mean, there was no way that you guys were going to let that slip by. The two of you, your new attorney, 
this guy, Chuck, you know, your buddy, who dreamed, literally dreamed up the murder, your involvement in it, what was his message to you and what did he ultimately testify on round two? Ultimately, he wrote a letter and I remember getting a letter. I'm in prison, of course, and it has Charles Erickson's name on it. And I'm like, I'm getting a letter from Charles Erickson. It blew my mind. And he just acknowledged the fact that he lied and that he wanted to come clean and, and, and admit that. And How so, long were you in prison when you That got... was in 2009. It was right after Kathleen came. All right, so Bruce. five or six years mm-hmm. he's been sitting there knowing that he lied. Correct. And he finally decides he wants to do something about it years into your bogus conviction right. and imprisonment. Okay. And so finally, you know, it takes time to get hearing. Uh, you have to go through the courts. And so every appeal takes a year or two years. So whenever they deny one, you know, I know two years of my life are gone. And I know, you know, when I get that letter, another two years will happen before I even get into court and get that ruled on. So I'm happy, but I'm also like, you know, I'm going to be here for a while. So we end up getting a hearing. We end up uh, having Erickson admit that he lied. We have all the evidence proving that I'm innocent. And I'm going to jump ahead here. uh, But Jerry Trump also acknowledged that he lied. The two people who testified against me said I was there. They both admitted to lying, subjecting themselves to 30 years in prison for lying. So, you know, they had every incentive to just continue with their lie, and they went ahead and acknowledged that they they, uh, they did wrong. Well, and thank God that happened, because I'd imagine there are some cases where people said, well, I might feel a little bad about this, but I'm not going to prison. Happens every day. For this, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at long last, let's fast forward to the end. You now are in front of a new judge. All the evidence is out there. This prosecutor who put you away, what, what does he have to say for himself? And then what happens? Well, before we can jump to the end, there's, there's a hiccup in the middle. And uh, I just have to bring it up because Judge Daniel Green in Jefferson City uh, I pretty much is friends with Kevin Crane and protected him. So both the people who put the me— The prosecutor. The prosecutor, Kevin Crane, yeah. So this judge and this prosecutor, buddies, they probably play golf together, who knows— um, Crane comes and testifies at the hearing. You can see it all on on the, the documentary. But long story short, 100% proved my innocence at that hearing. The judge takes a year to rule on it, basically, and denies it. So, And when did he deny it? And he denied it on the anniversary of the murder. So he literally waited a year to basically send There's a message. Theatrics that, there. Yeah, to send a message that it doesn't matter what evidence you have or that the whole world can see it. We're not going to let you out. So how did you get past that? Fortunately, there's an appeals process. So another year, two years goes by. Hmm. And, uh, and you know, that was the most crushing moment, I think, for all of us, really, because all the evidence, 100% proved my innocence. The whole world can see it, and they can still get away with denying it and leaving me in prison. So fortunately, we went to the uh, Western District Court of Appeals. Uh, multiple judges, they're not related. They're not tied into the community. And that's where we felt like we would actually get a fair hearing. And we did. And a three-judge panel said unequivocally, you know, they had evidence hidden from us, Brady violations, and the case should be overturned. And clearly uh, that I'm innocent and that, you know, they could try to retry me if they wanted to. But Yeah, that was they, not going to happen. No, because everybody could see uh, that there's no evidence, so that I didn't belong there to begin with. So that was very fortunate that we had already had all that evidence and the state chose not to. It's just incredible. And it is outrageous. I want to get some final thoughts from Ryan in particular when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson.
listening to the best of Guy Benson. I am in studio with Ryan and Bill Ferguson talking about this wrongful conviction under which Ryan spent a decade of his life, nearly all of his 20s, in prison for a murder he did not commit. So, Bill, this was a decade of your life. This was a decade of your son's life. It finally is resolved. You have finally actually won. Talk to us about the first time outside of prison in freedom that you were able to hug Ryan. Well, it was at, they released him at the Boone County uh, uh, Jail. And um, he came over and uh, we had a big hug. First time outside of uh, the prison, but we were still in the confines of the jail. And then we went over to the Tiger Hotel, and I I'd reserved uh, the ballroom. I would hope so. so. Did you have a drink? I would have had a drink. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to have a drink, drink later. Good, good man. But, uh, <laughs> but we want to get there because I had uh, put out uh, a notice that we're going to have a press conference, and Ryan would be speaking. And... Uh, Gosh, what were there, like 15 cameras there, I think. Uh, networks from St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Jefferson City. Everybody's there. The ballroom was completely maxed out, I feel like. And Ryan stood up and gave uh, one of the best speeches. Uh, it wasn't like a canned speech. That was speaking from the heart. And it was so well so well spoken and so well architect, uh, articulated. Uh, I think the, you got a, a, a big clap for that. And uh, uh, that was so reassuring. And then I got another hug, and that's the one that really made the difference. We're on the stage, every, in front of everybody, in front of all the television cameras, and now we know it's real. It, it's real. It's that real. was a good hug. And <laughs> the, well, the first hug, literally, they I didn't even know if I was getting out. I, I had no idea. I knew that the conviction was overturned, but I sat in prison for a week after that. Then they came, got me, took me to the county jail. I didn't know if they were going to re-arrest me and then put me in the county jail, try to retry me. I didn't know what was going on. And I'm sitting in the back of a van. I'm handcuffed. I'm shackled. I'm in orange jumpsuit. I'm not free by any means. And I see uh, my father, my mother, uh, my girlfriend. They all walked into the Sally Port. And I knew at that point they would have never let them in there if I wasn't going home. And they all walk in and then they open the door. Before I can hug them, they have to unshackle me. Mm -hmm. They're sitting there watching me be uncaged and unleashed. And then we hug. And so that was good. But like you said, the, the best hug was... Being stage. away from there, being it, away from prison. All yeah. of this stuff is in the documentary. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need to see this for yourself. If you have enjoyed this hour here on the Guy Benson Show, please go watch Dream Killer. Last question, and it's for you, Ryan. Are you angry that a decade was stolen from you? And second part of the question is, what would be the number one reform that you would like to see to a system that really screwed you? Thank you so much for this question. Uh, I think it's the most important question, the most important thing we can take away from our whole experience. My family is mine. The 10 years that I lost, I am angry, but it's what you do with that anger. And I think I try to do positive things with that anger. And the most positive thing I can do is stop other innocent people from going to prison for crimes they did not commit. Because this is our criminal justice system. It could happen to you. It could happen to one of our family members again. It could happen to anybody we know. And the reason it can happen, the reform that needs to happen is there needs to be accountability for prosecutors. If pro like Our system is designed and worded so well that if it worked the way it says it should, it would be a, a perfect system. But there's human error, and there... And there's bad people. There's bad people. And they're and, not always, quote-unquote, the bad guys right, either. There, there are literally thousands of people in, in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And I've met hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them. And in almost every case, a prosecutor knew that they were sending an innocent person to prison, and there has been no accountability. They're, they're not 
arrested. They're not put in prison. They're not, they don't even lose their law license. I think three prosecutors have lost their law license in over 3,000 wrongful convictions. Yeah. I mean, and look, we on this show support law enforcement and the criminal justice system strongly. There are bad people, many of them out there. We need to be protected from them. That's what the system is designed to do. And I think as conservatives who support law enforcement, we can also recognize, speaking for myself, that there are flaws in the system. And it's not weakness to admit that and to try in good faith to fix some of those weaknesses. I think that's something that's not left or right or center or anything. That's what we should all aspire to. And that's why I wanted to bring this story to our audience because, uh, you know, now it's years old. You're on to a great life. You're living here in New York. Uh, you know, your dad's in town. You guys are hanging out. But there was a decade-long nightmare. And you are one example of far too many where this can happen. And I think we should all commit ourselves to at least the goal of reducing the number of wrongful convictions that happen in the country. And I just want people to really hear your story, think about these issues, go watch the documentary Dream Killer if, if you're curious. What does this guy look like? What does his dad look like? It's, it's an amazing, amazing film. Um, Bill, I cannot overstate my respect for you and just indefatigable for a decade for, on behalf of your son. Just, I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times, but I am in awe of what you did. And Ryan, I mean... The fact that you're still here after a decade in prison and all those setbacks is just uh, an incredible testament. I'm I'm honored to have you guys on the show. Thank you both for coming in. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Ryan yeah, and Bill Ferguson. Wow. The documentary on Netflix, Dream Killer. What an inspirational but also sobering and eye-opening way to enter the weekend. Thank you both for being here. Thank you all for listening. Have a good weekend. Back here Monday, it's The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.